listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 R. You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week, the 17th of April to the 21st of April. This week we talked to comedian Phil Jupitus, who came in to tell us about his show, Duplicity, but a whole lot of other stuff as well. And we discussed whether and when you should nod at strangers as you pass them. It's very good. And also, we um, had a chat about um, lies our parents told us when we were things and we believed them. Yes. I thought my, eye, my mum had eyes in the back of her head, for real. And also, um, we had um, Dr Amy Webster from Women's Health Victoria uh, talk to us about the labia library. And uh, Sally Sherwin from Zoos Victoria popped in to tell us when to smile at a crocodile. Or when your reptiles were happy. Thank you. And uh, we also had a nice little chat about how we prepare for hangovers or how we avoid hangovers. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Dr. Amy Webster is from Women's Health Victoria. She's one of the people behind a project called the Labia Library. Welcome to Breakfasters, Amy. Thanks very much for having me, guys. It's a great pleasure. What's Women's Health Victoria? Uh, Women's Health Victoria is a statewide uh, health promotion organisation in Victoria. Um, There are about 13 women's health services that work regionally and then uh, Women's Health Victoria is the statewide body and we work on issues like preventing violence against women and sexual and reproductive health. And what then is the Labia Library? Labia Library? Labia Library? Uh, Either way is fine. Um, So the Labia Library is a health promotion resource developed by Women's Health Victoria um, and it's basically a photo gallery that shows real unaltered images of women's genitals and it was developed in response to increasing demand for uh, cosmetic labiaplasty in Western countries including Australia. So um, that is something that I read about a couple of years ago that more and more young women in particular are getting labiaplasty. What is this attributed to? There are a few things that are driving um, the increased demand for labiaplasty and um, there are factors in Australia including uh, censorship rules around um, how uh, women's genitals can be depicted in, in things like magazines. Um, people have suggested that pornography is a factor and increasing exposure to pornography. So how is it that women's genitalia can be depicted or can't be depicted? Because just off air I was talking to you about how when I was young I used to uh, go to Dolly magazine to get all my information about what was normal about my body what was happening to me as a teenager but am I right in saying that they can't even show a woman's vagina in its kind of whole completeness is that right in in some cases yeah. is in, in, in um media like magazines uh you'll generally see the labia minora which is um often referred to as the inner lips yeah. um they're not depicted and often the clearest won't be depicted either so there can be a real lack of um high quality accessible health literacy information and often girls go to dolly or um cleo magazines like you um but sometimes that doesn't give you the full information either and what 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 does um this cosmetic surgery does it have bad effects on people? I mean, is this a, becoming a real health problem or is it just simply that people are taking surgery that they don't have to have? Well, yeah, I mean, like any form of cosmetic surgery, it's not medically or therapeutically indicated. So it's not medically necessary. Um, and there can be, like with other forms of cosmetic surgery, um, you know, side effects or repercussions. And that can include things in relation to labiaplasty, like reduced sensitivity. So I guess you're talking about um, the idea of appearance being more important than function or pleasure in some cases is is there such a thing as a normal labia 
there are lots and lots of normal labia, yeah. So uh, the labia library has around um, 40 images on it and it shows a really wide range of um, normal, healthy, unaltered labia. And um, I'd encourage your listeners and yourselves to check out the labia library and uh, there oh, is mate, real diversity. I've been checking it out. It's great. <laughs> uh, but that's a, one of the things I didn't realise is, um, uh, you know, you've got some... It, you know, it's so easily accessible information about it as well and so, you know, to the point. Um, like here's a fact that I didn't know that um, about half of all women have a labia minora that are longer than the labia majora. Yeah. I had no idea it was that equal. Yeah, and it can be something that women really worry about, you know, for years or sometimes decades and, mm. and not really knowing if that's normal or not. And we get a lot of feedback from people that view the Labia Library saying, you know, I'm a 65-year-old woman or I'm a 38-year-old woman and this has been something that has worried me my whole life and now doesn't worry me anymore. Yeah, because if you're not seeing, sorry, you know, in Dolly Magazine stuff, if they're cutting out the menorah and yours is bigger than, gosh, what are you going to think about yourself? And then, so, it's, yeah, it's nice to see that it's... Do you think that maybe there's a way of introducing this conversation into maybe sex ed classes for girls in high school or even younger, at a younger age, to kind of be aware of what everything's meant to look like and what's normal and what's not? We'd absolutely love to see that, of course. And uh, we do work with um, GPs sometimes at the Labia Libraries and the um, GP guidelines for working with patients on this issue now, which is great. Um, and we often... Um, get to do sort of one-off sessions with young people around Labia Library stuff, but we'd like to see it picked up in a more comprehensive way in sex ed. And what do you know about who's using the library, where they come from and what they're using it for? Well, we know a bit. Uh, we know that it, the Labia Library has been accessed from every country in the world and um, sometimes we get as many as 178,000 visits on the Labia Library a day. Wow. Amazing. It is really amazing. And it's just it's really feeling that, that niche um, for information that you just can't get even in other countries elsewhere. Do you have to have your how why are you allowed to show these things? Is there different rules for online? I mean obviously it's for an official source, but is there anything you had to overcome to be able to show these images? Uh we had to work um you know with photographers and um uh and consider a lot of ethics along the way. Yeah. Um because it's a health literacy website and comes from a health organization, we were um able to depict the use the photographs. Yeah, right. Yeah. And is there no equivalent elsewhere? Is that why people are coming from overseas? Is this something unique in the world or do other countries have similar pro yeah, projects? It's, it's totally unique in the world. So Women's Health Victoria back in 2013 did a little piece of research that looked at these you know, um, rapidly increasing rates of demand for cosmetic labiaplasty and they thought you know, what needs to be out there is some accurate information so that at least women are making informed decisions um, and have an appreciation for the wide diversity of, of normal that's out there. Um, and it is a unique resource and we think that that's why it gets access from everywhere in the world. Is that surprising this day and age that it's still unique? Yeah, I think it really is surprising. I think that it also points to perhaps there are some other gaps in basic health literacy information for women that young women tend to go to Dolly for, for mm. example, um, around things like self-pleasure or even around like periods and fertility. Um, there's body image concerns about breast size and um, nipple shape and there really are a lot of opportunities to, to support women to um, have more positive body image. Mm. All right, where, so how, how do people find the Labia Library? 
Uh, you can find the Lavia Library pretty easily at www.lavialibrary.org.au. Okay, and there are links there if people want more information. Or... Absolutely. So all the photos are contextualised as well and they'll give you some more information about what you might otherwise be seeing. And sorry, one more thing. Sorry. Um, it, what age groups are you... Like, is there an age limit to this thing? Like, do you encourage, you know, how young can people start looking at it? That's a great question. Um, And originally when it was developed, we thought it was going to be teenage girls Mm -hmm. that really looked at the site. But what we've realised now is it's a much bigger spread of ages. Um, So women, you know, from very young age all the way up to their 60s. Um, We also know that mums sit down with their daughters um, and sometimes boyfriends check out the website or male partners as well. Um, So it's been a really wide um, reach and access. Great. The project's called the Labia Library. We've been talking to Dr Amy Webster from Women's Health Victoria. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks so much, guys. You're listening to The Breakfasters and Triple R. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R. You'll know Phil Jupiter's from Nevermind the Buzzcocks, QI and other places. He's in Melbourne at the moment for the Comedy Festival with a show cleverly entitled Duplicity. Welcome <laughs> to Triple R, Phil Jupiter's, or rather I should say welcome back to Triple R. Well, yeah, yeah. My, my first uh, ever radio interview in Australia was on Triple R and that's like 18, I think, 18, where was it, 2017? Yeah, 18 years ago. Yeah, what's that? Yeah. Only been up from there. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> What we did <laughs> on the breakfast show? No, no. I I'll, don't I'll, remember. You who know, the is. thing is, I'm trying to remember any details of that first visit because it was I was doing a TV show for a channel called Paramount in the UK, and we were doing a documentary about uh, the festival. And and but in addition to that, I was also doing gigs at the festival, and so it wasn't a normal experience. It was uh. like land, start filming. Filming, filming gig, filming gig, interview, interview gig, filming, leave Australia. Oh. And then in the middle of all that, there was a, you know, I remember coming in t- to, to Triple R and, uh, yeah, it was, and lots of my mates who were British radio nerds had, had interned here and things. So, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Hopefully this will be a normal experience. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you've been on TV, TV, you've been on radio, you've been an actor, but you mm. began your career as a political performance poet back yeah. in the time when Linton Kwesi Johnson, John Cooper mm. Clark, Attila Stockbroker were all getting huge yeah. audiences. Tell us about that time because it, it's it, hard to imagine now. Well, it's, it's. I mean, that was the, the odd thing about it. I think that uh, it was... The way I thought of the ranting poets was that they were like lead singers of bands that were so dysfunctional as individuals that they couldn't get bands, basically. (laughs) What we're talking about here is very, very strong personalities that, you know, and who already had musical differences before they'd met musicians. So, so, but they had the lyrics and the songs were all in their head and so they shouted them without musical accompaniment instead, really. And it was, it was like a punk kind of ethos. And also, like like any like any culture um, that evolves, it responds to what's going on. And Thatcher got in in seventy nine, so the ranters kind of came off the back of that. The thing about Clarkie and Linton, I mean, Linton obviously was dealing with what was happening with the indigenous, um, you know, uh, the, uh, the 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 black sort of third, second and third generation uh, black immigrants to the UK. Linton was talking about that uh, a lot in his work, you know, and. and was just he had a poem called Sonny's Letter, which if I think about now, kind of sort of still gives me shivers up the back. You know, it's just extraordinary about a kid getting arrested, uh, and poetry about the sus laws that were going on. Whereas Clarkie, 
wasn't really political. He was more kind of just holding up a mirror to the that the world that Manchester world that he grew up in. Mm. But he was such an individual singular i saw i saw cooper clark was the first basically the first poet i saw perform live and I, he was opening for susie and the banshees at the road in chelmsford where i used to live in essex and i could i, I just i'd never seen anything like it in my life it was just i was jaw-droppingly just a guy in a suit wanders on stage at a band gig and reads poems out and i'm like how why but then when you see that it opens a door in your head you go someone can do that and like, yeah. that means, well, maybe I, and I'm, you know, I don't, like, I would seriously say that at least half of stand-ups are frustrated rock stars. Yes. They want the band. <laughs> it is. But that's what they want, is when they're up there, they're not, they're not thinking, oh, look at me, look at me, I'm, uh, you know, look at me, I'm, I'm Bill Hicks. They're thinking, look at me, look at me, I'm, I'm Liam Gallagher. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. the way they're thinking, you know, whereas I am up there thinking I'm Suggs from Madness. <laughs> um, does politics still inform any of your stand-up now? Because you've got right pickings uh, with Theresa May having just announced an election in the UK. Yeah, I, uh, it's so weird because yesterday there's a very interesting thing about the way social media works now, particularly if you're not in the country, which is I was reading jokes about a news story that I didn't know what it was and pithy reactions. Yeah. <laughs> so my my Facebook feed is just going, ha! Wow, yeah, what is this? You know, and, and I'm like, you're seeing people's initial one-liner reactions to a story and you don't know what the story is. And it took me five minutes to find out that she called a general election. Now, and initially, I thought, I initially thought quite seriously because my mate works at The Guardian online. And she just, she just, she just uh, put on Facebook, uh-oh. And I thought the Queen had died. Oh, <laughs> You know, oh. but it's just, but seriously, because yeah. she went, uh oh, and then the next post was strap in everybody. And I thought, because that's, you know, I mean, it's a thing to dwell on. But The Guardian did a whole piece the other day about what the protocols are going to be for eventually that, when yeah. Queen Elizabeth dies. I mean, it's an extraordinary piece. It's great. Because the country, you know, and Australia here, I think it will be hit harder even than we will be in the UK. I think, you know, it's just. What was everything. the Queen dying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like they're looking at 10 days of. Not much happening in the country. Wow. Everything's shutting down, oh, you know. Because I, I remember I used to, when I did radio, we had the royal death box in the corner no. of the studio. And, um, and, it's, and it was just, it's a, it's a quarter-inch tape. Because uh, you always had a quarter-inch um, uh, recorder in the studio. And literally, if it happened, you get a phone call from, from uh, the general, uh, the DG's office. The DG's office phones uh, station controllers personally and says, you know, put protocol, whatever, interaction now. And you put a tape on and it's solemn music that just loops. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. Everything oh, just stops. We need to get one of those. Wow. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Insane. And it's the thing is, is the box in the corner. It's just got solemn music for state occasions, and that is what it's for. Because I remember it was someone. I think it might have been Ian Rankin, the crime novelist. Was what's that box? And I went, it's, <laughs> and I, it's, it's the. It's, and I explained what it was, and he went, "What's inside it?" <laughs> Like, which album is it? I went, mate, no, it's just solemn music. Hey, but what? Like The Cure? I went, no, it's not, it's not The Cure. <laughs> uh, when was the last time you were out here for, for Comedy Festival? You've done 99, it 1999. It was, that was yeah, tough. yeah, that was it, yeah. Mate, you excited to be back? Well, it's, this is actually, so tonight, and it is tonight, it's my first ever solo show in Australia. Because last time I was just on mixed bills. I was just doing like 10 minutes. Ah. So this is the first time I've ever done a solo show in Australia. So I'm throwing everything in the kitchen sink at this tonight. So I'm going to do, be doing some of the old poetry. I'm going to be doing some poetry 
in the, there's going to be in the mix and some music as well, songs. Because I was in a band with Neil Innes from the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band and Aid Edmondson from uh, The Young Ones and Roland oh. Riffron of oh, Raw yeah. Sex fame, if you're ever a French and Saunders fan. So we were in a band together. Uh, that the, the name of whom we can never say on air, so it's very difficult to promote. You can uh, say it here. They were called the Idiot Bastard Band. Oh, that oh. is so. so I we thought went, you were going to say my, something my, so my much. No, we, 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 were, we were never allowed to say. Uh, on BBC, they're like, they're like, well, uh, thank you for coming to plug your shows. Now, do not say the name of your band. Really? I'm like, that's a very counterintuitive marketing ploy we thought of right there. Yeah, yeah. oh, you know, the Beeb were very, yeah, yeah. So we, on one, one hand, play... solemn music on the other <laughs> hand. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, we play a band called Sus Cunts. So oh, hello. Good morning. There's my espresso. Wow, madam. Good Lord. Uh, we, we should mention, never mind the Buzzcocks, you started in 1996, ran for 19 years. Did you have a sense it was going to be so long-running when it first started? No, started? absolutely not. See, when you go in, and, and there was a there was a brilliant, there was a, a comedian in the UK who's uh, a Geordie actor now called, and, and novelist called Mickey Hutton, and he gave me, when I got Buzzcocks, I remember him phoning me up, and he went, kid, it's great that you've got this job, and it's brilliant, and I'm really, really happy for you, but, like, what you have to remember, man, is it's only a bit of telly. It's just a bit of telly. And I kind of took that on board, and I just, my assumption at the beginning of every series was, I, w- I won't be asked back. And that's always how I treated it economically and emotionally, right up until <laughs> after my 18th season, I thought, right, if I do two more years of this, I can afford to go to uni. I can save up some money and I can go to university. And literally, the second I relied on it, and the second I didn't have that scorched earth, it's finished now, it will never come back. And I used to finish every series and go, it's finished now, it's never come back. The second I went, two more years of Buzzcocks and I could go to university, it got cancelled. No! Yeah, yeah. I was going to do fine art. I wanted to go back to uni and do fine art. You yeah. should just start a possible campaign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's crowdsource the education of a fifty-five-year-old man whose blood pressure is two hundred pounds a square inch and whose cholesterol level is brie. I'll give you a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> it's a start. That's not a Kickstarter. That's a stumble starter. <laughs> the show is called Duplicy. It's on at the Melbourne International Com- Comedy Festival. We've been talking to Phil Jupiter. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you very much indeed. Good yeah. to be back. It's lovely to have you. You're on Triple R. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R. Hey, guys, before we were talking about um, parks and how, for some reason, it's considered inappropriate for adults to go into parks. Yeah, you just feel like you have to have another mate there to go on the swing. Can't just walk over on your own and get on the People swing. People think you're creepy <laughs> yeah. for some reason. Anyway, it was reminding me, on the weekend, um, I was in Sydney and we were in a national park, mm-hmm. which you can go into. That's okay for adults to go yep. into a national park because no play equipment. But a funny thing happened. We were walking along and there was hardly there was hardly anyone there, but you're on this narrow track. And then a group, a couple of, an elderly couple came towards us. Mm-hmm. And I said, Hi. And yeah. waved to them because I thought that was what you did, right? Of course you, you did. Yeah. And they just cut me dead. When you they say cut you dead, what do you mean? They didn't answer at all. They didn't say hi. Cut you with a knife? <laughs> yeah, they cut me with a knife. <laughs> literally cut you dead? Oh, wow. <laughs> People are savage there in New South Wales. <laughs> oh, the uh, old back- back- <laughs> grandparent backpacker murderers. <laughs> well, anyway. But they, they blanked you. They, they blanked yeah. me. 
Well, go you dead. Come on, go. Go you dead. Yes, it was very rude of him. Uh, so and what do you mean? So you actually went, hi. Yes, because I just was just being neighbourly. But how, how far away were you? Did they, maybe they didn't hear you or see well, you. Well, I wondered were... about that. Mm. And so we walked on a bit further. And when yeah. the next people came, I did it again. And the same yeah. thing happened. But no. still, how far away? Hang on, was this a Jeff, hello, we cast your eyes down and on black side of your mouth? <laughs> well, it might, might have been. But then after that. Steph and I said, we're going to do it to everyone now and <laughs> see what yeah. happens. And then it became louder and more aggressive the more people that we saw. And did it work? No. No, it was so... That's so strange. It was so rude because don't you think that that's what you do, yeah? That's the etiquette of when you're bushwalking. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You're anywhere. If, if, like, if you're walking anywhere and there's not many oh, people right around... In the city. Oh, yeah, not many people, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah not sure. in the city. Don't do it to no. the city. That would be kind of weird. <laughs> Can just a, 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 a nod of the head at the very least. Yes. Yeah, so by the, by the end, what, about halfway through, I was saying, hello, how are you? How's it going? <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd be. <laughs> and then they were just rushing past me really. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that uh, maybe it's a New South Wales thing? Because I was in Sydney on mm. the weekend and I was walking around a neighbourhood with children and I kept going, hello, hello. And it just was, it wasn't an enthusiastic Hello yeah, back. It's maybe like they're like outsiders. Yeah, and my brother lives in Western Australia, and he's always said to me, whenever he, oh, whenever he comes to the eastern states, he makes a big point of saying hello to everyone in the street because he thinks that people over here don't say hello to one another because he lives in a smaller town, uh. WA. Uh, it's almost to the point of, you know, ridiculousness. But uh, I'm wondering to the where point they, of where what a bit Jeff of Jeff, was doing. Yeah, a bit, yeah. Of, a bit of hello, how are you? How's yeah. you, you know? Uh, but maybe as a point. Oh, I don't know yeah. when I used to ride a motorbike. There were many things that were terrible about it, like that I was a terrible bike rider. I kept falling off. I can't off. believe anyone I ever gave you a motorbike license. <laughs> well, they didn't really. Oh. So, so <laughs> <laughs> no, I had my L's, but I never progressed beyond okay. there. And in fact, the time that I went for it, I didn't actually get it. But anyway. <laughs> no, it was, a, it was a disaster. It should never have been allowed. There should have been a law against it. But the one thing I did there like. There is a law against it. <laughs> The one thing I did like about it. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, I know what you're going to say. Is you ride past someone else and everyone nods and waves. Yeah, you get a, you get a nod, a motorcycle nod. You don't do it for if you're on a scooter. No, Sorry, you no. miss out. Yeah, miss out. But you have really? to be on a motorbike, and it's and you've got to tilt your head to the side, um, so they know you're just not you're not just going over a bump. <laughs> So, like, if your head jolts going over a bump, that's not that a nod. Count. So you got to tilt it to the side. Do you do it even if you're G'day, mate. Right, whilst you're riding mid-ride? Or yeah, do you only yeah. do it when you're waiting at a lights or something? No, no, no. no, when, no, no. Whenever you pass another motorcyclist. I've never noticed this. Well, because no, you well, don't you ride a motorcycle. You're not part of the, the, the gang. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah scooters and posty bikes out. Don't have to nod at them, but everybody else. What little about posty? No. no, it's not. You they haven't they progressed were, enough. Really? Yeah. yeah. No I one mean, speaks I, to the postie anymore. I kind of felt like if only. No, they, no, no, riding the postie bikes. Uh, the, yeah. yeah. I kind of felt scooter. that it was. I was sort of there under false pretenses. Like if they actually knew how bad I was at riding it, they probably wouldn't. Maybe they were actually going get off. Maybe. <laughs> 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 You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Dr Jen was in yesterday talking about carrots. She was. And um, it reminded me, um, I... Because I did think that if you ate carrots, you'd be able to see... So did I. ...better, yeah. And I also mentioned that I thought 
that my mum had eyes in the back of her head. Like literal eyes? Yeah, like for real eyes. Up until what age? Um, maybe seven or eight. Wow, that's a long time. That's almost, yeah, that's a long time. Do you know what it was? She would stand at the at the kitchen sink and, like, I obviously learnt about reflection much later. <laughs> <laughs> so she would stand at the kitchen sink at night time and we'd stand there doing the dishes and looking out the window when it was dark and I would be in, in the background, like, behind her, not, you know, supposed to be drying the dishes but probably eating ice cream out of the tub or something like that. (laughs) Of course. And I'd be watching her, like, just, like, looking out the window. I go, she's not even looking. I can can hook in. And then she'd go, and then I'd just hear, I I can see you eating that ice cream. Like, what? What? How? And then... And she goes, I've got eyes in the back of my head. Didn't you know that? I'm like, what? And then I remembered, like, just getting, like, really close and just trying to see the eyes. And I thought, oh, I must be under all that hair. Like, I don't know how she does it, but... And did you find this... Creepy? Disturbing? Yeah, because yes. that would upset me. <laughs> no, it just, it just made me think that I was constantly being watched. Like, someone else is watching me as well. Like, it was just that, you know, that... Just added on top of the, the Catholic, oh, God is always watching. He's <laughs> fucking need another pair of eyes on you. Did you think that you might develop eyes in the back of your head or did you not take it that far? I didn't take it that far. I was yeah, just right. too, I was too busy trying to find them. Um, do you know what else I did think is when, um, as soon as you turned 18, like you'd like beer and coffee. Oh, oh. Yes. I remember thinking that. Yeah. And I also remember thinking that as soon as you turned 18, you just moved out of home straight away as well. It was like, yeah. like the day the you turned 18. Yeah, <laughs> like you got moved out of home. Yeah. But the coffee thing I remember, because I remember as a kid thinking it smelled so nice, but mm. then, you know. You'd drink again. And you think, this is disgusting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it'd be like, yeah, someday it would just dawn on me. But that's pretty much what happened actually yeah. now, now that I think about it. And the same with Siggy's, because my grandmother used to smoke and I loved the smell of it. I used to love sitting next to her. Yeah. Having a smoke, and I'd go, mmm, and she'd say, no, 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 you know, these all, these all, these are not good for you, and you shouldn't smoke. But I remember thinking, yes, Just but I will right, smoke mate. when I'm 18. I'm going to smoke, and ah. I'm going to love it. This, it was never very convincing when your <laughs> grandparents would tell you not to smoke and with a cigarette. Yeah. Puffing away, I know. But I feel like parents and stuff should be more careful about uh, yes. the things they tell you if because you, if your child says, ask you a question, and you don't know the answer, say. I don't know. Don't be bloody saying, like, Make you know. Make some the, crazy answer up. Yeah. yeah. The one I remember, actually, this wasn't my parents, this was my friends. I remember when I was about 13, we were all convinced that you didn't get hangovers if you drank clear spirits. Oh. Like if you drank vodka because it wasn't yeah. something we could – because vodka was like really exotic, you know. Yeah. Like, it was like – because, you know, yeah, we, were yeah, just, yeah. we were drinking a horrible – Those stollies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> right. But – um. You know, and, and like you'd get a hangover of not drinking very much or whatever, but all the cool kids would tell you that clear drinks, yeah. you know, you can drink as much of them as you want and you'll never get a hangover. And then I can remember <laughs> we were just about, just just the about dying <laughs> the, the first time we actually got a bottle of vodka. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I, I just, my parents used to tell me, so they had lots of names for people and things in our lives that weren't the real name. So, Maybe the person at the grocery store was Mr. Moustache oh, yeah, yeah. or something. You know, but I, as a kid, oh. never 
kind of understood that these weren't names that you used outside of the family. It was their funny way of referencing people who might have idiosyncratic habits and stuff. Sort of names you wouldn't want to say to them. Yes, because we had we when we used to go a lot to church uh, up in the country where we were. And most Sundays we were at that church and there was a priest there who was so old, so old, and I can't actually remember his real name, but he had an issue where he used to chew his tongue and blink his eyes a lot. And he mm-hmm. was, he used to, I know, he was quite old. I think it was to get the spit in his mouth. I don't moving and do, I don't know. But he'd blink. But anyway, we called him Father Blinky. Okay. And I thought his name was Father Blinky. And yeah, well, that's fair. That was it. And, and we'd say, oh, Father Blinky's, uh, Father Blinky's not well. We're going to go and visit Father Blinky. And I just assumed Blinky Bill, Father Blinky, it all made sense yeah. to me. And I can still remember the day I went up to him and said, because Mum said, you have to go and give this, go give this to the priest. And I went and said, excuse me, Father Blinky, I've got this. And I could see Mum staring at me just going, oh, no. Sarah, Sarah. And I, she, I came back to her and she gave me this little tap on the butt. And I was like, what? what is, oh, my what? God. She's like, his name is Father. Let's go with Wilson. Father Wilson. Why did you call him Father Blinky to his face? And I, was, I just didn't realise. And what did? How did Father Blinky react? He just chewed on his tongue and blinked a little bit at me. So at least, at least you would call him Father Drooly or yeah. Father Chew Tongue. Father Chew Tongue. <laughs> Time for Feature Creatures once again here on Breakfasters. And today we are welcoming Sally Sean from Zoos Victoria back to the studio. How are you going, Sally? Good. How are you guys? Very well. Good, thank you. Very pleased to be talking about this topic. How do we know if reptiles are happy? Yeah. God. Good question, isn't it? And Jez has worn a crocodile T-shirt as well. Yeah. I'm so excited. I haven't had this T-shirt. It's an old favourite and it did a spring clean and it went... Picked it out of the bathroom. Oh my god! It's, it's my favourite croc T-shirt. And it See, looks like you... it's smiling. That croc yeah. as well. Yeah. Like it might be happy. Yeah, yeah probably. Oh, exactly. It is a happy croc. So yeah. it is a it is a tough question for us to answer. It's something that we've spent a lot of research effort on, and we still are, and we're still trying to work out the answer with a lot of it. But Do reptiles even have emotions? Great question. There's limited evidence at the moment compared to other taxa. So when we refer to reptiles, we're talking about um, lizards, snakes, crocodiles, a big group of animals, basically. So, you know, mammals, everyone's familiar with. They're the cute, fluffy things. Mm. And and we understand them and their emotions really well because they've been well studied, pretty much. And they're a lot more similar to us. So it's a bit easier for us to get inside their minds and understand them. Reptiles are an equally huge group of diverse species. So, yeah, your lizards, snakes, and, and crocodiles, but they've just hasn't haven't been studied. That's why I say there's limited evidence. Not that it doesn't exist. It's just that people haven't spent as much time studying the emotions of reptiles as they have mammals. Um, so it's still yet to come. There's a lot of work happening in it. But yes, they do. There's evidence to suggest they they can bond with humans in some cases. I mean, just a quick browse on YouTube, looking at people with their pet iguanas and things that come up for a cuddle with their um, owners is pretty adorable. There's this legend called Gordon 
Burkhart, who's a reptile play expert, who's written books on reptile play, and he um, describes stories of um, like playing fetch with iguanas and crocodiles and and things huh. like that, and um, and even. Yeah, facial recognition in some of these animals oh, as well, wow. which is pretty incredible. They can recognise their keepers and, and show a particular affinity towards some. But they do show, um, they definitely show similar, um, yeah, I suppose, capability of showing emotions to us humans. It's just that science hasn't yet addressed it. We've got a lot of work to do in this space, but we're attempting it. We've got some pretty cool projects happening at the moment, which is exciting. But I always thought that... Um it seemed like that, like with crocodiles, that their their brain is so tiny, um, and it's been you know over years of evolution, they they've just gotten to the stage where it's just kind of eat and. And yeah, driven by instinct. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they do have small brains, that's for sure, in, like, in comparison to the rest of their body size. Mm. But you know what? So do birds. And only in the last couple of um, years, research has shown that despite, you know, bird brains a thing, uh-huh. despite having a tiny brain in terms of its mass, they had um, like an insane amount of synapses and neuron fi- like potential ah. fire. So it was a different structure to what we were used to rather than mass because it's not like the mammal brain. So there could be something there, but yes, they are very instinct driven. The other problem with reptiles is they're ectotherms, so they're well cold blooded we used to call it, but so they rely on the temperature for um, to to warm up their body systems and then energy is very dependent on the temperature as well. So on a cold day they'll be quite lethargic and not expending much energy, but on a hot day they could be extremely active so that's another restriction that we have when we're studying them to be able to understand yeah that they're so so reliant on the environmental conditions as well so we've traditionally thought of them as pretty behaviorally unresponsive we call them to changes but we're just starting to work out that that's potentially because of um what that behaviourally unresponsive in the conditions in which they currently live, but when you expose them to things that we thought they wouldn't be interested in, they show play behaviour and positive interactions and things. So, like, what? What have you done? So... We've got a project happening at the moment with a PhD student of ours at the Animal Welfare Science Centre at Melbourne Uni studying giant tortoises oh. and their enrichment preferences. Um, so he's doing some preference testing because the evidence tells us on busy days at the zoo, for example, Wilbur, the giant tortoise, and little Johnny's mate will come up to the enclosure fence line for scratches from the visitors and they'll purposely oh. position themselves there because they get massages so the visitors can reach over and give them scratches. Oh, on their shell and everything. Yeah, well, you're not allowed to get in there. Oh. Unfortunately, some people do do that. That's not ideal. Um, but you can, yeah, if they come over to the fence, because um, it's in the animal's control, they can come right up and have a scratch. And they choose to have that kind of interaction. They also love their keepers. So when they see one of their favourite keepers, Adam, um, they'll come running over, at, well, running over yeah. in tortoise <laughs> <laughs> to Adam and um, grab a, have a scratch and a massage. And um, and so what, what we worked out with those guys is there's something going on on here they're showing an affinity to seek these kind of interactions with humans so we're setting up a preference test for these guys trying to tempt them with food or human scratches and seeing what they what they pick yeah (gasps) but with those guys what we also had to do was because the keepers would hose down their enclosure all the time and um the tortoises would make themselves a bit of a nuisance and get under the hose and um 
enjoy that water massage, you know, that feeling on their shell mm. and cool down. And so the keepers were spending all this time hosing the bloody tortoises instead of the <laughs> enclosure. And so we thought, right, we need to um, – obviously they like this. They find this rewarding. So we built them motion-activated showers so the tortoises oh. can have a shower whenever they want that to. That is awesome. And how it's often so do they choose to have showers? In summer they, they do it a lot, but um, it's – yeah, it's it's depending on, on weather conditions. So we've got a temperature sensor and things like that too. But they can get a bit lazy because we only let it run for a few minutes and they have to get back out and trigger it as well because we don't want them just, you know, flooding the showers place, all day. Yeah. Well, well, you yeah. said that what, one of them has a mate. Like, so do they actually – do reptiles – do they – Bond with other reptiles? Yeah, so some some reptiles are social, some reptiles are solitary. So it depends on the species. But um, tortoises in general, yeah, they have a mate. It's a little bit more one-sided, I would say. Wilbur enjoys... Um, Little John's company more than Little John enjoys Wilbur's Aww, company. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> no, but How do you know sad. that? Uh, just behaviour. Oh, wow. <laughs> so monitoring, yeah, where you spend enough time watching tortoises, you get to know them pretty well and their preferences. Little but, John keeps on trying to walk away. Oh, yeah. Gets yeah. followed. Seriously, and, yeah. Seriously that's Leave it. me alone. Yeah. <laughs> but that's just, yeah, so with our snakes, they're a whole nother kettle of fish, trying to better understand them. But So remember I said behaviourally unresponsive. They're quite happy to sit there and be delivered their food. Mm-hmm. But that means they can be quite susceptible to um, obesity, for example. So huh. we've got to watch their weight. And so what we're doing with some of our snakes is um, putting them through a bit of a, a, a fitness program We've built them a hydro gym um, the for the best. snakes that like to swim and it's got like a jet power thing. So we, um, we've we started off and we evaluate everything to make sure that the animals are doing well. And so they've, they're literally, do, we're doing skin fold tests, ultrasounds for fat deposits and um, cardiovascular fitness testing to see how they improve over their fitness program. Wow. I'm doing myself on the side as yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, it's something that it's, again, it's just science is trying to catch up in, in the world of reptiles and better understanding what's going on with them we've got cool projects happening on frogs as well but do do snakes have friends some snakes are social but very few species but um yeah they do hang out together sometimes we're not sure if that's because they like hanging out with each other or it's you know a temperature thing we've yeah we've got to better understand that but a lot of snake species are solitary and and would be hanging out by themselves when a snake then has babies and all its little eggs hatch yeah. Is, are they, do they feel bonded with their babies or do they just slither away? Yeah, most, most of them would just see you later. Good oh, wow. Luck. Yeah, but um, so that maternal care, um, yeah, it varies. It, there's an extent of that. Some would be a bit protective to a certain degree, but like cr- some crocodiles, for example, show a lot of maternal care of the young and protect them from predators and things until they're big enough to go off and do their thing. Turtles do at times as well, oh, some yeah. species, but... Um, a lot of sea turtles, they just hatch and then off you go into the ocean. And um, I'm sure this is just a prejudice, but I feel like snakes aren't very nice. <laughs> Definitely a prejudice. No, we've got some very friendly snakes at the zoo that love, um, yeah, that love certain interactions and exploring and things like that. But people um, often have a skewed view of them because of... Um, yeah, the Bible Benham and stuff. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I wasn't going to go there, but <laughs> I was going to say the venom situation. Fascinating as always, Sally. We've been talking to Sally Sherwin from Zoos Victoria. Thank you so much. Thank you. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia.
Let's talk about Australian values. Um, <laughs> Let's. Yeah. As in, um, how do you survive a hangover? Um, <laughs> so on um, this is the last weekend of Comedy Festival. I have my last show on Saturday night. And then on Sunday, I plan not to leave the house. So obviously I'll have a bit of a celebratory um, drink yes. after the show. Maybe a couple. but I will <laughs> Maybe drink more than a couple. Yeah, but... Each one of them I will drink responsibly. Um, uh, but my plan is on Sunday, this is like I'm kind of a bit more excited about the Sunday than after the show. Do you know what I mean? Like, because mm. I'm like, I'm not going to leave the house. Oh, sorry, I will. I'll go and get like um, some chicken and chips just for hangover food. How far is a chicken and chips place from you? Do you have to get in a car and drive there? Yeah, I'll get in a car and oh, drive. Worth okay. it though because yeah. it's a really good place in Thornbury. Okay. So I'll hook into that. Um, <laughs> and then and then I'll probably, I'm thinking I'll watch A League of Their Own. Oh, classic. Yep. Classic. Get a bit teary, have yep. a bit of a laugh, but you know it ends well. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Get on the couch, blanket, puppies, away we go. That's a really good style. There's nothing worse than getting your hangover, the post, or the day of the hangover decisions wrong. So, like, Mm. coming home from Meredith this year, I usually always get, it's one of the one times a year, don't judge me. You can judge me if you want. I get Maccas and I'll have a large Maccas meal coming home. This girl is like this secret. I thought you were going to say something else. No. Anyway, I have have a big big Maccas meal and we all stopped at our spot where we get Maccas this year and I didn't. I went for this kind of slightly healthier option. There was some other chain thing there. Mate, what are you doing? I know. It was like a wrap. It was a chicken wrap thing. I thought, oh, that's, you know, that's the, oh, such a mistake. It ruined my hangover. I just failed it and there was nothing I could do because I really needed to eat. And then I just thought... I've done. I'm done for. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I love how, you, how you're planning this out, though. And I guess often when I'm in that situation, it's, you know, it's sort of it's something that's just happened. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not like yeah. you. And that's always kind of worse because. That's when you make the wrong decision. Yeah, it totally is. It totally is. Plan like for, for me, it's not chicken and chips. It's um, bratwurst in the Vic Market. Oh, oh, that could yeah, be a bit touch and go, though, well, about hangover. Being in the Vic Market is not great because there's so many people oh. around and there's so much noise and there's all this stuff going on, but those bratwursts are so good. But ah. then, but also you can get in and out. If you can get somewhere and you know it's going to be worth it, then yeah. it's great. Get and it in, into For me, your... it's not a league in one side. In fact, I'm a bit scared to tell you this because you're both going to yell at me. No, we won't yell at you. We'll probably you no, ju- no judgment here, Jeff. <laughs> no so judgment here. Judgment here. <laughs> so much. <laughs> Episodes of Big Bang Theory. Of course. No, we know that you like that. That's all right. I think that it's all about, so if I had a choice, it would be something like reruns of The Nanny, something where I just know that I'm being lightly carried along and I enjoy it, although I love The Nanny in any state. I also think what helps too is planning to reduce your hangover. So when Andrew and I first met, when we were um, hanging out and mates in Sydney and mm. just go, would go out drinking sometimes. He taught me this golden, he used to call it the golden triangle um, to help your hangover be reduced the next day. And that was Ooh. eating a piece of uh, pizza from this place called Olympic Euros, really greasy, intense. Yes. It was quite disgusting if you ever saw it during the day. But in, <laughs> if you had it at 3am in the morning, so yeah, you'd have this disgusting piece of pizza, oily mm-hmm. as possible, and then you'd grab a Powerade. So you had to have a Powerade. Oh, you yeah, you yeah, go yeah, by Powerade, yeah, yeah, yeah. and we'd, you'd down a Powerade and two... Neurofen to stop any of the swelling that occurs, and you'd have that before you go to sleep, and it just transformed my hangovers. Yes, yes. right. See, I'm a big fan of. Um, I don't really I'll do probably, that anymore. That's but. the how you call it, the golden triangle. Mm. But I, uh, I would get up 
uh, like go to bed and then the first when I first get up like early in the morning mm-hmm. like at that at the crack of dawn when yeah. you've got to get up and go to the bathroom and you you feel like death and then you go oh and then that's when you have um, Panadol or Nurofen then get oh, the painkillers in yes. get a big glass of water pop yourself back into bed oh that is nice you're listening to the best bits of the breakfasters from 3 Triple R 